Welcome to Booked All Night, a late-night discussion-style podcast about the young adult literature and middle-grade books that keep us up all night. Hosted by myself, Jessica Tuckerman, Magdalene Ann, and Daniel Stanton, who unfortunately couldn't join us today. Fair warnings include language, spoilers, and rude-ass pets. Subscribe to Booked All Night wherever you get your podcast fix, and make sure to leave a nice five-star review of the show before you go. And if there's a book you want on our radar or you're dying to chime in on the discussion, visit us at anchor.fm and leave a message. On tonight's episode, we're joined by Somaya Daoud, uh, author of Mirage, which was shortlisted for the Children's Africana Book Award, as well as the Arab American Book Award, and Court of Lions, which publishes on August 4th. We are recording on August 1st, 20. Uh, Just to kick us off, can you give us a pitch for Mirage and Court of Lions? Yeah, so Mirage tells the story of um, Amani, who is a young Koshela girl in a galaxy far, far away. Um, And she lives on a backwater moon that has been occupied by an Imperial invading force. Um, And on the night, on her majority night, which is a coming of age ceremony, um, she is kidnapped to the Imperial Palace because she looks exactly like the Imperial Princess Baram, who's half Koshela and half Imperial. Um, and she gets drawn into all kinds of like court politics and that kind of thing. Wonderful. I'm so as I, I stated on the the last podcast, uh, Maggie actually got an an arc of Mirage when that published, and she was only a few chapters in. She's like, Jessica, you have to read this book, and I'm like, cool. I'll put <laughs> I'll, I'll put it on my TBR, and I'll get to it when I get to it because I'm permanently like nine books behind on my reviewing oh, schedule. God, I know that and. <laughs> And so now we were part of the the Twitter read along and I got to read it and I'm so mad at past Jessica for not dropping her TBR (laughs) and just jumping into this book because it is it's totally up my alley. It's so dark and it's sci fi and it's fantasy. It's like all the things that I love and like, damn it, past Jessica, how dare you? How dare you make me wait to read this? And so I was was telling Maggie about that. And she's like, well, I told you. I told you you would enjoy it. You never listened to me. Uh, so through our perusing and our our uh, digging, mostly Dan's digging, he tends to ask these questions, but he's not here with us today. It's very sad. Oh, yeah. um, you have a PhD in English literature, which like, yeah. congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is insane to me. Um, so congrats on that. Uh, and your Thank focuses you. were on world literature and 19th century Orientalism. Uh, how yeah. did that particular education influence your work? Ooh, um, so actually pretty directly, especially because in Mirage, one of um, sort of the cornerstones of Amani's interior life is that she is a poet and she loves um, poetry from antiquity is how she refers to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so poetry from before uh, space flight and all of that kind of thing. Um, and so when I was reading up for my uh, qualifying exams, um, I stumbled into basically reading a lot about Arabic translation because, spoiler alert, I should never have been a Victorianist. My poor humans, they're so <laughs> they're so wonderful. But like, I, I actually started out as a medievalist and that's really where like my heart lies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to write about A Thousand and One Nights and A Thousand and One Nights comes into prominence in the 18th and 19th centuries. So my master's advisor was like, if this is something that you seriously want to write about, you're going to have to switch periods. What he should have mm. said to me was, Sumeya, don't leave the super chill dudes who are medievalists. Because it's scary <laughs> in the 19th century. 
Um, and so I was really trying to find my way back to it without having to, because the other thing too is uh, my program has a very small medievalist and early modern program. Um, and it was getting bigger, but like it was getting bigger by the time that like I was nearing, I was like about to be done. So I was trying to find my way back. And the really cool thing is in then, or not really cool thing, but a favor to me is that in the 19th century is when the medieval revival happened. So mm-hmm. all of our ideas about the middle ages that we think are like sacrosanct and like rooted in history are actually like falsehoods erected in the 19th century as part of like an imperial colonial proto-nationalist campaign. And, and they weren't like, they weren't like conscious lies that were erected, but this is also like when medievalism as a field of study begins and when the academy is like first solidifying itself and all of these things are really invested in like what we think of as like immovable parts of the university system and the academy today. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I feel like I've gone way off track. Anyway, the point <laughs> of is, is that I did is that I ended up there and I and I ended up like reading a lot about like medieval Arabic translation and the ways in which the medieval Arabic literary scene is responsible in a lot of ways for like the 19th century and the Renaissance in Europe, which is not something that is talked about a lot in like in the English literary studies, right? Like they're, yeah. they're thought of as completely separate. And so um, I found my way there and then ended up reading a lot about like theories of Arab storytelling, theories of poetry, um, uh, how translation works and how, and how translation as a mode of like power and empire is embedded in how we translate like poetry and literature today. And like, is translation actually real or is everything sort of like a fake attempt at rendering the original and that sort of thing. And so like, obviously Mirage is more concerned with, um, the trials that Emeni goes through, but like that's those questions of like translation and empire and how translation and empire and poetry are all sort of bound up together, um, then ended up filling up the novel and like forcing me to ask myself like world building questions about like what sort of literature gets prioritized and how is literature a race and how is literature um, an important part of culture and how do those, those things come together or come under attack when like um, an occupying force enters the arena and that sort of thing. That's great, though. Like we we've actually been talking about translations yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about translations a lot the last couple of interviews that we've had, um, and you know I think the most notable mistranslation is um, Joseph's Technicolor Dreamcoat, which is actually you know his coat with sleeves, and oh <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> Uh, but like, but that's a big thing, right? There's there's a whole musical based on this mistranslation. And, right, right. Uh, w- once upon a time, I was an English lit major, and my baby is Dante's Inferno. And you, oh, wow. you know, you yeah. So you you constantly read different translations of these works, and they're always just a little different. And sometimes, you know, people try to stay within the cadence of the work, and they try to like make mm-hmm. it poetry, and it's like, please stop please, please don't try to write your own poetry. But, but bigger things are, you know, plot, plot changes, because there's a Mm -hmm. different perception based on the translator. And they're like, some are more educated, and some are just taking this from the language. So where someone is more rooted in this period of history, they're like, that's not what that would have meant. This is what that would have meant. And it changes what's coming, especially like, I don't speak Italian. Right. <laughs> and I well, was... certainly don't speak old Italian. So <laughs> <laughs> um, this was actually something that I encountered when I because I made the very foolish decision to translate a poet, a poem by Antoine Ben Shaddad, who is like the Arab 
poet. Like when you're mm -hmm. thinking of like poetry that you want to represent the beauty of the Arabic language in a pre-Islamic context, like everyone goes to Antara. And so I was like, it'd be cool if I translated him, even though I am not an Arabist and like my Arabic training caps out at like my junior year of college. Um, I was like, this will be fun. It was not fun. It was awful. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but one of the things that um, I had an original and I had a translation by an actual Arabist that I was like comparing the work that I was doing to. And it was really interesting because um, because I have context for the pre-Islamic era and because I had actually done some research, I understood why his translation was the way that it was. But it's also a translation that only makes sense to another Arabist who has the context of the, uh, the, the context within which the poem was written. Otherwise it's like, why are you translating it this way? And it was super interesting. Cause like my po my translation that um, appears in Court of Lions is totally different. But I also understand that like most people who are reading Court of Lions have no idea who Antara ibn Shaddad is. And they have no context for like pre-Islamic Arabia or like tribal warfare or any of that stuff. So like I was not burdened with having to make all of that legible to the reader. Um, mm -hmm. But it was just really interesting reading his poem because I was like, the only reason that this as a translation makes sense to me is because I actually have some context. But to someone from outside, you're like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. I don't, I applaud all translators in general just because, like, as someone who is bilingual, like, I have trouble enough translating my own thoughts into a different language. Like, just as I'm speaking to someone, I can't even imagine, like, trying to translate someone else's words to, to also convey the emotional impact that they're trying to do especially like in poetry that's just mm. that's, it's amazing work and I I really want to get into more translated works in general um, it made me really want, sympathetic yeah. to translators because I started yeah. out my dissertation being like translation is fake and actually people <laughs> who translate are like collaborating and imperial endeavors and then i tried to translate a poem and i was like oh okay i see <laughs> maybe like it's maybe a little bit more complicated than that i i have such respect for translators like one like there's so much that goes into it as as we've already stated but yeah. like when when i was in french classes so many 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 years ago once i finally got to like advanced level french in college you know there were doing that very standard what did you do over the summer and i live in new jersey so we we go down the shore which does not translate into any other language so i have to say like we we traveled to the beach which is not went down the shore you know like right. it's a completely different phrase and we got funnel cake and funnel cake does not translate into shit so <laughs> So I'm trying to explain to my teacher that I had, you know, fried cake with confectionate sugar on it. And I don't have the language to tell her this. And like French, French has the word fry, but it doesn't have like deep fry. You know, there's right. no, there's no word for like, we've stuck it in a vat of boiling oil. <laughs> I have to explain that we stuck it in a vat of boiling oil. And I don't have the language to tell her that we had to go to my department head to translate that I was eating terrible terrible food and then my French teacher was just like why are you eating that I'm like it's delicious you know like it's, it's so good and my my favorite part about that story though is that your professor didn't speak English oh no she was yeah Polish. yeah my my oh. advanced yeah my advanced French teacher the only language that any of us had in common in that classroom was French which is fine it's an advanced French class until you are talking about funnel cake which doesn't translate <laughs> right. into French and 
and she didn't speak she doesn't speak english she was polish um and i'm like i guess that's fine but i don't speak polish either so i don't know how <laughs> i don't know how to explain this to you and i one of one of my favorite lessons actually like which is still on the subject of translations was um <laughs> cognance and all these false cognance and how our mispronunciations were telling her a different story uh so for things like um merci beaucoup right with the coup at the end is thank you very much but with a just a little hint of an l at the end is more like thanks sweet ass and so every time we would mispronounce this she's like excuse me you know <laughs> and uh what was another one um oh uh goose Goose in French does not mean goose. It's a derogatory term for uh, lesbian. So when uh, the the rather like rich upper crust members of my class were saying like, oh, like for Christmas we we had a goose. She's like, you had what for for oh Christmas goodness. dinner? And <laughs> and she realized like we don't we don't know because these are these are cognates. No one's ever corrected us on that. So I can only imagine like translating literature where if someone is not in tune enough with the language or even with the culture they're like i guess this is close enough to this word and it must right. mean this and you're getting this completely different picture and instead of a multicolored coat you just have one that has sleeves kind of thing right <laughs> <laughs> uh but to bring us back to uh mirage and court of lions um, no we're talking about translations on okay. this podcast this, this entire uh, 16 <laughs> podcast is going to be about just translations um but to me, Mirage and Court of Lions uh, are like the perfect solution for fans of both science fiction and fantasy because I got, as I was reading Mirage, I'm like, this is science fiction. No, this is fantasy. I just get like having an internal battle. Uh, but it's, to me, it read as both and I loved it. Um, what were your, some of your favorite tropes to play in from both genres? Um, so I, I think of it as science fantasy. Um, <laughs> so like very much in the, in the vein of Star Wars, which um, when I teach my students, they're all like, it's science fiction. I'm like, it's not because you have magic space priest knights. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so one, it was really fun to just like do the thought experiment of like, I get to do this like lush space opera with um, <clears throat> space Moroccans and like, what does their culture look like now that they've terraformed two moons and they've achieved space flight? Um, what is like the depth of their history? One of my favorite things about fantasy um, and one of the things that I think is most important about it is that it's really about like history and how we theorize history and how we myth make. And so that was the thing that was really fun to play with in a futuristic setting, because to me, one of what should be one of the natural consequences of a science fiction future that is like so far in the future that they've achieved uh, particular types of technology is that then you also have like a very deep history um <clears throat> and it's always like one of the things that i get really frustrated with like um do you guys watch the expanse i do i have to keep watching episodes though because it's like really heavy and there's a lot of characters so like it, it demands oh. my full attention but i, I binged absolutely it in love like it. two weeks um oh, but like the it. stuff with the proto molecule have, have you gotten to season four no no not there yet okay but go ahead and spoil so it it's fine <laughs> okay, sure. okay so like anyone who hasn't seen season four of the expanse huge spoilers okay but so they basically they go to the gate to where like one of the places that the proto molecule has like originated and so there's all of this like interesting stuff where they're like the proto molecule did this and they built these civilizations blah blah, blah but we like don't actually know anything about the people who built the proto molecule and i'm like i don't understand like why are you not giving 
this like extinct civilization of point of view, which is extremely my bias because I think a lot of sci-fi readers are like the proto molecule is a vehicle by which we can create conflict. And I'm like the proto molecule is a character that has a codex attached to it. And I want access to the codex. And so that's how I approach like science fantasy writing as like an, an, an opportunity to like crack open the codex for like deep history stuff that like sci-fi does is not always necessarily interested in you know i think um like on that note it's very similar to did you ever play uh any of the mass effect games uh yes hello <laughs> yes awesome <laughs> it's gonna be my favorite interview that we do all year it's great uh so i finally got to play those my husband got them for me and i'm just like ripped my way through mass effect and mm-hmm. of course mass effect for those who don't play you know you've got like three major tiers of things one of which is biotics which is basically like space magic and one of the things that they do a really good job with is protheans which are like the first major space traveling civilization and you constantly find out new things about them and how that technology became your technology and it really like influences and creates the story that you see as these rapiers are coming in and like as you at the end you find out you're like oh my god they are the protheans yeah um it it's it's important to shape that like like you have to have that information to understand because if you were just like yeah we have protein technology and you like never got an answer as to who they were it means right. absolutely nothing throughout this whole story right right yeah and i think that they do such a good job of it of like seeding it i like i really think that the mass effect trilogy is like the perfect yeah story it's like the perfect game they're a perfect game trilogy um and they they it's like so clear that they're really invested in this and and they're that they're invested in that history having like a visible impact on like the shape of the galaxy the shape of the politics the shape of the characters um and it's not to say that like most sci-fi doesn't do that but i think that like it's less like that kind of storytelling is less a priority for (laughs) for a lot of science fiction and i like that's that to me is like that's why you have a futuristic society so that you can mine the history for angst and tragedy yes (laughs) yes like especially in futuristic societies because you know the the lesson is always like we didn't learn our lesson before right and and like if you can't get, tell me what that lesson was i'm also not going to learn the lesson <laughs> <laughs> one non science fiction uh question uh and this is from dan who of course could not be here sorry dan uh but he found out that you used to work at politics and prose in dc and yes. w- wanted to know what that was like cuz he in his own words that would be his dream job it was really fun. So I worked in the children's department um, while I was getting my master's. Um, and it was really, I mean, it's just like being surrounded by book lovers and then like being able to um, to like pitch your favorite books to people who come in. Um, but it also did, it it was super useful in thinking about the industry and or like in understanding the industry because I got, I had like a direct line to like who was buying books. Um, and so the, the interesting thing to me, especially in politics and prose, which like full disclosure is like in a fairly affluent neighborhood and like caters to a fairly affluent clientele Mm -hmm. um most of the people who are coming in to buy like really beautiful hardcovers and paying like the 20 dollar hardcover price or whatever are like grandparents and parents kids come (laughs) in and they're they all want to read like the warrior cats books right yeah which are all like eight (laughs) dollar 
paperbacks. <laughs> um, and then you've got like the high schoolers who have who have access to um, to like allowances who can come in and buy buy hardcovers. But like most of our sales were done in like middle grade paperback books with like the the really like long standing series. So like Rick Warden, The Warrior Cats, um, How to Train Your Dragon um yeah um and then and then you would get like some like saucy middle schoolers who wanted to read a little bit above their level and then they would look for like saucy YA books um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's a um, man on the cover I'm gonna read it <laughs> I made a mistake once of trying to like of like there was like a group of middle schoolers who I didn't realize they were in middle school and they it was like a whole class of them they'd come in with their librarian and I pitched them um the sky is everywhere which is very saucy right mm-hmm. And then I, and so, and they were so excited. They were like, yes, we've like duped this bookseller into believing. (laughs) I don't know if they were 12 and I like flagged the librarian and I was like, I'm so sorry. You're going to have to take those books from them. And she like had to take the books from them. I was like, no, not, not today, girl. (laughs) Oh, Oh, that's a shame. Uh, so all all of this wonderfulness brings us to our very first game of the podcast. We do play at least two games per podcast. Uh, and this first one is Never Have I Ever Spoiled My Own Book. So we're going to give you uh, 10 scenarios. Uh, and they're, they're all very stereotypical, writerly, readerly things. Uh, and if you have done five or more of them, you have to give us a spoiler for Court of Lions. So to kick off... Never have I written fan fiction. Okay, how, how do I say that I have written fan fiction? You say, you say yes, I have written fan yes, fiction. I have written fan fiction. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, never have I ever based a character on a friend. Oh, never. Mm-mm. Never. Never have I ever name dropped an author in my work. Oh, never. Uh, never have I ever secretly hated my cover art. That's more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Do tell, because yes. uh, the first thing that brought me to Mirage was just its cover. I was like, ooh, shiny, pretty. I <laughs> want to see what this is. And oh, then I, I, thought, <laughs> I loved the original cover. Um, but I, I also understood why we had to change it simply because um, it wasn't telegraphing what the book was to teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, the primary audience. Like, they just, like, you, it's so beautiful, but, like, you're sort of like, what is this book about? Yeah. Je ne sais pas. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but then, so then when we went to, when the publisher wanted to rejacket um, the paperback with this, like, beautiful illustration, it was just, it, there was a point where I did really hate it just because it was, like, pulling teeth trying to, like, explain cultural appropriation and like cultural authenticity to the artist um, and for a while like like there was there was a point where she was like in an aqab and i had to be like that's orientalist she also doesn't wear a veil in the book um and then there was a point where she was like in a dupatta which is like a um, south asian headscarf and i had to be like again culturally inaccurate and also orientalist and i was told that like Perhaps I simply wanted to be upset about the cover, and that's why oh. I had these notes. Yeah, oh, it was super goodness. great. Oh. It was really great for me personally. <laughs> that sucks. Um, so yeah, so so the cover is great now, and she's in this she's in this like beautiful culturally authentic garb. But it was like um, this conversation was happening when like um, 
Seattle was having its it's like snowpocalypse so like the most snow that it ever received in 100 years and like I'm from Virginia and I like survived both like the like snowpocalypse and the like um polar vortex or whatever that was happening and so like seattle is not built for snow and so everyone in the city was like (laughs) in a mass panic like these people i remember after the snowstorm like people were outside with like their garden hose shoveling ice and i was like (laughs) i hate so so (laughs) but so i was in the store and i was like okay i'm not gonna leave my house because i don't want to die and slip on ice or something and i went to go buy turkey and and i like got this email um and like all of the meat was gone except for the pork which is the only meat that i can't eat because i'm muslim and so i remember like i was on the phone with my sister and i was like looking at the empty poultry section and this email was in the back of my mind and i just like lost it i was like i've hit rock bottom and i was like i'm so upset there's no chicken left oh my my sister was like what is wrong with you and i was like there's no chicken (laughs) but we got there eventually we got there eventually and now and now i i do love the cover so that's i guess you can they you can beautiful. put that in whichever column you want to about <laughs> well, <laughs> well the cover. i'm going to mark it as a yes but i think it's maybe like not so secretly that you hated yeah. that book cover. <laughs> <laughs> and for good reason and I, I i i'm so bad that they said that to you that's so rude i'm so sorry i mean you know i at this point i'm sort of like the industry is going through a lot of growing pains um yeah and they're sort of learning about like what actually is not acceptable to say behind closed doors. <laughs> I mean, I like on one hand, I guess they're learning and that's good, but it's still like yeah. it's still very very sucky that anyone yeah. has to go through that. Oh. <laughs> well, to continue on with the game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I never survived. No, it's fine. These are important things to put out into the universe. Everyone should know. Um Never have I ever squealed at the bookstore when I saw my own book. Oh, no, I haven't. I'm I'm going to. If I ever get mine published, I am going to squeal and record it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think, so, so my thing is that um, by the time, like, you, for me, by the time I saw the book in, in a bookstore, I had also seen, like, cover art many months before I had gotten like admit like several versions of the advanced reader copy and then I had already also already gotten like finished copies so it was just it was just sort of like this is, this is gonna make me sound awful but it was just like by the time that I'd seen it in a store I'd been like I've seen this many times <laughs> have, I'm just gonna I be have... excited that it's in a store like <laughs> I, I would not be able to I'd probably like take it off the 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 shelf and be like, I wrote this. You should buy yeah. it. I wrote it. <laughs> I'd be a weirdo and like follow strangers around the store and be like, you can pet my dog. Just read the book. <laughs> like every parent's nightmare. It's fine. It's fine. Oh no. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, never have I ever cried from a bad review. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, do we wanna, do you want to? Do you want me to unpack that? <laughs> I mean, if you. If you would like to unpack that, you can unpack that. Um, I got a pretty like homophobic review on on Court of Lions, where I was yeah, where I was like devastated because I had because I, I had on some level understood that like not like that it was a thing, but I I I, I expect more from YA readers, mm-hmm. and so the review was like, um, I think she had like DNF'd it, and then she had a content warning homosexuality oh my gosh and it was like that was the that was the language that she used content warning homosexuality and i I'm, i don't think that i've ever been a, as upset about something as that and that like that's when i like instituted i'm not reading goodreads reviews anymore um <clears throat> it was it was so like yeah 
Sorry, I'm like harshing the vibe all over. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's like again, like these are things that people need to hear. But that's such yeah. bullshit. Who does I know. that? Yeah, it's so yeah. It was very like I was I was like oh, okay, and and the the really awful thing is that like the review definitely read like like she didn't think that she had a problem with lesbian characters in the novel, but the review made it also really clear that like that was the number one reason she had not finished it, Jesus. and that she felt the need to like warn people about this content. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> releasing releasing a novel with like women of color two of whom are lesbians in 2020 should not be that hard and yet <laughs> yeah I yeah grumble yeah. grumble 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 <laughs> I just, that's so aggravating oh my god uh, yeah. alright never have I ever deleted more than 10,000 words from a draft <laughs> <laughs> I'll just put that down as a yes. So I'll just put it yes. <laughs> Maggie, what was it? Maggie, what was oh. your, your record that weekend? You deleted like 30,000 30, or something. Something like that. I Yeah, I had to scrap my master's thesis twice in the last month before it was due. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, that was a bad month for me. Oh my God. So I had to rewrite, uh, it was, I think it, it uh, I think I wrote like, um, the final total was like just shy of 50,000 words. Cause I powered through the, uh, the draft it was not oh, a good draft, but goodness. yeah, it was rough. It oh was God, rough. I feel nauseous for you. <laughs> like yeah. Gosh, I could not write for like six months after that. That, that was just, it was bad. It was so yeah. bad. I could I can only imagine. Like Especially it wasn't because, even like, words that I deleted and I still I'm still feeling that for you. Uh, so never have I ever spent more time organizing my desk in order to avoid writing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes uh, I'm like, oh I just, like do a little bit of organization and then I look up at like five hours of tasks. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Who was it we had on? I think it was um, Kit Frick. She's like, oh, yeah, um, no, I actually don't do that. And so my house is a mess and my writing's not done. So oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was all good. And I'm like, oh, just like me. <laughs> um, never have I ever gone to a coffee shop to get my writing done. Oh, that's like my 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 place of choice. This pandemic nice. has really like harshed my vibe in terms of like chosen yes. spaces to write. Yeah, I I used to go out to the diner because New Jersey is like normally open twenty four hours a day, mm-hmm. uh, and now everything closes at eight o'clock, and I can't even go out to sit somewhere. So I'm at home. I've got three dogs. My husband is here. He tends to leave me alone though. But it's just yeah. like somebody is there, and so I yeah. want to talk to that somebody instead of doing my writing. And yeah. so none of my writing has gotten done. It's fine. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I used to have like a location, like rotation that I would do, mm-hmm. uh, especially when I was back in my, still doing my master's. I uh, I would go in the morning, I would go sit up in there because I, I could get free refills on their coffee. Uh, then I would go to the library. Then I would go home. Sometimes I would go to Starbucks and just like rotate wherever I, I wrote every other day or so. And now since, uh, and, and, and just now I can't can't because now I work from home and I work I'm a I I do data entry now for my day job 
So I'm sitting at home in front of computer screens doing my numbing work. And then I end up sitting at the same desk near this near the same screens, but on my laptop doing my writing work. And it's I just need to move. I miss the library. I miss endless coffee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I miss coffee. I miss coffee so much. So much. I miss coffee. I have started now drinking a gallon of cold brew every week because I can make my own cold brew at home. And it's, oh, uh, wow. Yeah. It's a lot easier to make and a lot less cheaper than Starbucks. Um, uh, finally, our last uh, portion of this game uh, Never Have I Ever Dog Eared Pages. Oh no, I definitely do. Yeah. <gasps> yeah, so you have done. <laughs> you have done one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of these. Oh, no, <laughs> a spoiler. Um, how much of a spoiler? Whatever you're allowed to spoil. Yeah, whatever you're allowed to spoil. I would say at least within like Act One. Okay. Uh, you don't. Oh, okay. You don't have to be like the ending. Like you know, you don't have to be like Tom Riddle's Voldemort kind of thing. Like you can <laughs> <laughs> dial um, back a little. God, what is a spoiler? Um, oh, Marum asks Amani to take her place on like the wedding night. That's a <gasps> yeah. Oh, my Which heart. Is oh. for both of them. Yeah. Oh, oh. oh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna sit over here and cry for a little bit. <laughs> I, I'm rereading Mirage to prepare myself to read Court Alliance, and um, I just finished the scene where. Uh, Oh, they're about to. They, they, I just finished last night the scene with uh, Amani. Uh, the, they finally uh, announced their love, and they they, ha- they, ha- they oh, had yeah. a very heated uh, moment. And I was like, "Oh gosh, oh, I'm crying already." <laughs> oh, <yeah. just> <laughs> to be fair, Maggie is a big hot emotional mess. Yeah. We went to go see <laughs> um, Love Simon. And they're sitting on the Ferris wheel, and all they're doing is thanking all the people that worked on the movie. And Maggie was a ball of tears. Oh, no. This wasn't even like part of the movie. It was a promotional, like thank you to all the people who who worked on this movie. Don't pirate this movie, kind of like thing, like yeah. right before it. And I'm just already a mess. I'm just oh, sitting no. there crying. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I scared the person that was sitting next to us. Oh, no. like, you oh. did. You did. There were a couple people in that theater with us. They were like, is that woman okay? I'm like, she's... No. no. But it'll be okay. Like... <laughs> oh, no. Okie dokie. Uh, so back to the questions. Um, you talked a lot during the the Mirage read-along on Twitter about uh, the research that you did on falconry and how it didn't make... Mm-hmm. All of it didn't make it into Mirage. Uh, as well as a few other things that you've researched. Um, did knowing that the things that you'd research or write could possibly not make it into the final draft affect your writing process for Court Alliance? No, um, simply because I think it's really important that even if it doesn't end up in the book that I know about it, um, mm-hmm. because I think that like gaps in knowledge are more readily, like the reader will know that you're bullshitting them. Mm-hmm. Um and so like I approach research as like this is this is like scaffolding or like background information um 
that will make how you approach characters and world uh, more enriched. Mm-hmm. And so I did actually try to include falconry stuff in it. And then it just became like about pacing and like, you know, I, I think I had like a, like a really quick piece of dialogue about how like in the Falcon retower, um, they hadn't yet started breeding the falcons and they weren't sure if they were going to breed them because there's a difference between falcons that are bred in captivity and falcons that are caught out in the wild because falcons Mm -hmm. that are caught out in the wild are taught by their parents how to hunt and so they're more efficient killers um versus falcons that are bred in captivity they're not as efficient um and i thought that that was fascinating um because the flip side of it is that falcons that are bred in captivity are not afraid of humans and are loyal to them Whereas falcons that are caught in the wild have to either be hooded in the Arab style. So like um, for Arab falconry, they would just hood them permanently when they were out right before they took them, they, they like lose them to go hunting. And in Europe, they would sew their eyes shut. Which is <gasps> te- isn't that terrible? Awful. <laughs> terrible. It's so terrible. Um, Leave it to but, the Europeans to be awful about stuff. Well, so like the yeah. interesting thing about this, um, this treatise I think it was by like Emperor Frederick II or something, um, is that he had a lot of Arabs in his court. And so he actually adopted the hooding style. He found the the eye sewing barbaric. And so he actually adopted the hooding style. And that's where I actually found out that there was even a difference in in that sense. Um, but it was just like quick dialogue, but it's not actually impactful for like story or character or anything. It's just like Maram is actually a falconer. We know she's a falconer from that like horrible first scene in the mm-hmm. first book where she loses her hunting raptor at a many um but it's just stuff like that where you're where it was just like i was like i think this is really cool and a really interesting world note um and my editor kate sullivan would be like it super is it is also not relevant at all. <laughs> <laughs> i would i would hate to hear that that would yeah. i think i would cry at that note it's really cool think- yes but no <laughs> I think that like at this point, I know enough about myself that I'm an overworld builder that Mm -hmm. I prepare myself when I get notes to be told that like some of this stuff has to go. Um. I, I wish I were like that. I, so like I, I prepare my world and a lot of things don't come into it. It's I write, you know, sci-fi psychological thrillers like you do. And when I was in my, my thesis defense, somebody had asked a question and I'm like, that's like so far behind the scenes i've never thought of that because mm-hmm. I've, I've i've prepared what needs to be here and how mm-hmm. what needs to be here works and like anything else i don't care about so i haven't thought about it and it was very some it was something very simple about like you know why are they flooding these rooms but not other rooms and i'm like because reasons um <laughs> not the answer you want in your thesis defense by the way if that ever comes up for anybody uh and it it took me a minute I was like I really have to think about that because I I definitely did not have that prepared one for that defense and two for this world because it was it was just like that little this little piece of information that was just never going to come up for me and I and that's all it takes is one little person saying it yeah, I find that really interesting simply because for a while I tried to world build that way. And then, and because my, what I like to write is like political and court intrigue, I would find myself like spinning my wheels in dialogue because I didn't actually know, like I knew the politics of like the planet and the cut and like the people on the planet and the various factions on the planet. But like in order to make the world feel large, like if they're a planet in a wider galaxy, then you also have to know 
like what are the other planets what is going on with them you know all of all of the stuff that like doesn't actually ever make it onto the page but like mm-hmm it feels like you're talking around it, like to me it felt like I was talking around empty space and so now when I world build I like I like I have like a for my for the project that I'm working on I have like a two three thousand year history timeline with like wow. political players and like various planets and factions and all of this other stuff and like almost none of it makes it into the book but I can write confidently because like if if I for whatever reason I need to draw on that information I know that it's fair and I know all of the things that have influenced the shape of like the current moment in the book. So that's I wish more authors um, had that and were like very public about that and kind of published them like um, Tolkien's notes have been published, mm. you know where he's just got volumes and volumes and volumes yeah. and of course like he's like to some the end all be all of fantasy but I I rather than seeing it as an example I would rather have it be like a examples so you can see that in in pieces that aren't contemporary like all this world building that goes into it because if i were reading notes like that be like oh i wonder what the ancient history is of this world and i could apply it to mine without having to be like yeah in a thesis defense and finding that i did not prepare enough you know (laughs) like i i think part of the problem with and, and this is as someone who is like an avowed Tolkien fan and who like teaches the Silmarillion in my classes. Um, yes. I think like part of the part of the issue with Tolkien is that he's taught or he's he's treated as someone who wrote like um, a MacGuffin quest novel, and mm-hmm. like his priority actually is historiography and trauma. Um, and so like and and this is like also a thing that like I care about in writing, which is why I like study him intensely. Um, but that like he has he has these like enormous histories because his whole thing is like a Victorian preoccupation with deep time and how deep time affects and shapes like trauma and history and memory. Um, and I think that like the fantasy, the the legacy that the fantasy genre has taken from him has been like hobbits go on a quest. And to me, I'm like, Hobbit's going to quest is a mechanism by which, like, he can go through a, like, post-apocalyptic Middle Earth and be like, that happened there 2,000 years ago. That happened there 1,500 years ago. So it's like, to me, I'm like, it's it's exactly what you're saying. That, like, it's a, it's a really good teaching tool in thinking about, like, the depth of your world history. But that also, he's not super good at plot. <laughs> no, he's not. I, I remember when when the movies came out, when the, well, when the... The most recent movies came out, right? Because there's like four or five animated versions of those right, books. Yeah. But uh, when the most recent ones came out with Elijah Wood and such, and I went to go see them at midnight with my mother, and they they do all these wonderful sweeping shots, all these wonderful pans with uh, with the the landscape. Mm-hmm. And at the end, my mother's like, "They cut out so much." I'm like, "What are you talking about? They just did like 17 chapters with one sweep of the landscape." You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> I know I was so upset (laughs) but even then like what is Tom Bombadil except an enigma that never comes up again so it like that kind of comes back to like the the world is beautiful but the plot is very much the hobbits went on a journey like and that's kind of it (laughs) well I think I think the other thing too is that like it's so obvious to me that Peter Jackson is always trying to make the Silmarillion and being told, mm-hmm. no, we will not pay you to make the Silmarillion. Because, like, I've talked to friends who have not read the Lord of the Rings books 
and they're like the movies don't make any sense and they're sort of narratively incomprehensible and there's all of this like stuff that like doesn't make sense and I'm like oh okay it's because you haven't read the books you haven't read the appendices you also haven't read the Silmarillion which also to me makes the movies more interesting um and makes his the choices that he makes really interesting um like I remember I was re-watching the scene where Elrond is doing the super mean dad thing where he's like you will linger here in grief and in doubt etc cetera, etc cetera, about her marrying Aragorn and, and he'll and, die and you'll be right, sad and he'll about die, it <laughs> you know yeah um and there's a tapestry behind them of the two trees which like if you haven't read the Silmarillion you know what the fuck the two trees are and I was like yeah I'm like or like um, when they're in Lothlorien, there's all of the swan imagery. And if like you haven't read the Silmarillion again, you, you have no idea who Elwing or Arendil are or and why Galadriel is hanging out in a swan boat. Like it makes no yes. sense. Um, so it, it's, it's like, interesting. It's a really me. pretty aesthetic though. <laughs> it's a really pretty aesthetic, but it's also like super depressing. <laughs> like I just, yes. it's, it's one of those things where I am like, PJ went hard for like the tragedy of like post-apocalyptic trauma and like no one let him tell that story so he's like sneaking all of in all of these things but it also makes the narrative like incomprehensible because you're just sort of like these are this is a feat of engineering like that they built Rivendell or or um Edoras in three days and then had to tear it down because of like New Zealand public park laws and all of this other stuff but also like if you if you are not into Tolkien if you're not a Tolkien fanatic you're sort of like that's nice bring Carl yeah. bring bring Carl Urban back <laughs> Tolkien especially is so so incredible. You know, he's he, like yeah. you said, like he's got the Silmarillion. You have all these appendices. You have all this extra stuff just to understand the first book, <laughs> right? And I, I actually, when I when I went to school in Vermont, I had a class on on Tolkien, and we did the entire trilogy plus the Silmarillion in that fifteen week semester. And I, oh my god, RIP to you, man. <laughs> I, I do not recommend this because you know your brain will turn to mush mm-hmm. but our our quizzes were like remember the names i'm like i can't remember these names that's Are impossible you... especially in the silmarillion where everyone's name starts with an f yes <laughs> yeah he one of the one of the things was like spell spell one of the ents names i'm like the ents can't spell their names that's not fair like <laughs> <laughs> this isn't fair at all this is insane and i the class was it was so good and so interesting especially with the aspect of the silmarillion because we always had an appropriate supplemental reading from what we were reading in the trilogy so we were Mm -hmm. like okay here's here's what he's referencing and now we get to read the story that he's referencing so that this extra makes Mm -hmm. sense but i'm like you know i these were some of the first books that I read. Like The Hobbit was one of my bedtime stories when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And and I remember like The Adventure, Bilbo's Adventure. But now I'm an adult and I'm like, this doesn't make any damn sense. <laughs> and, but I'm glad that I read these other things. And I would hate for something to have to have all of those appendices right. to make sense. But, you know, you can see how each and every one of those things made it into his work Mm-hmm. even ever so slightly and it's mm-hmm. it it is so good like i just we've totally ranted about that we're not even we're like halfway through this interview this is going to be very long for me to cut <laughs> <laughs> um to go on to the next question uh mirage is 
amazing. I'm loving it so much. I really am. It, it really reminds me of um, Frank Herbert's Dune. Oh. Uh, yes. So so you have read it. I don't have to yell at you. I have a little script here to yell at you if you haven't about, read Dune. About Dune. Okay, so I actually, okay, so I've seen the very terrible David Lynch adaptation and I love it with all of my we heart. Which... We don't talk about that. We don't talk about that adaptation. It almost ruined careers. <laughs> I just think constantly about, first of all, the woman who plays Lady Jessica is like beautiful, but mm -hmm. also like the, whenever they like zoom in on Kyle MacLachlan's face and he's like the spice, I'm like, that's me. <laughs> I feel that. I, I understand on a spiritual level what's happening to you right now. But I, okay, but I do, I actually, okay, so I actually do own a copy of Dune. The problem is that I bought it from a used bookstore and then I developed a severe dust allergy. So I literally can't oh. open it. <laughs> so I have to buy a new copy um, because I have a I have a stack. I'm gonna read. My plan is I'm gonna read the Foundation, um, Hyperion, and Dune at some point, yes. and I'm gonna like I'm gonna absorb all of this terrible white man science fiction, and then I'm gonna move on with my life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absorb it. It's so terrible, but I love it. But like, yeah. <laughs> uh, so so Dune especially, they're you know they're they're making a new series with it i'm so excited um yeah. but so much of this re reminded me of that so i was actually wondering uh, what other old white man science fiction and fantasy works uh have inspired you to to write this but also just to to be a writer like and you know feel free to mention titles that are not old white man fantasy and yeah. science fiction it's really oh man now like the, the thing that is happening to me now where I'm like cool I've forgotten everything that I've ever read um, <laughs> <laughs> because I will say for me really the like primary like um, inspiration for Mirage was Star Wars um, because um, I went to the Mopop which is the big pop culture museum in Seattle when the costume exhibit was was here um, in like 2014 and obviously like I am one of the few people who loves the prequel trilogy because it is gorgeously costumed i mean i love mm -hmm. it for other reasons because i actually think that it's like actually secretly a terrible ya romance trilogy and that's why it slaps no it totally is right yeah like, and, <laughs> like, any, any, yeah, like it's it's so like like anakin is like the broody emo love interest and i feel like people want to approach it more seriously and i'm like once you accept that anakin is like a 17 year old broody ya protagonist everything about that series <laughs> and, makes sense anakin is hamlet move on yes yes <laughs> definitely <laughs> um but so I went, um, I went to go see this exhibit and um, unsurprisingly, like almost all of the placards for the costumes were like, we, we drew, we drew inspiration from like this Eastern culture or this North African culture, or like one of the reasons that I love Padme is that in the first movie, she's actually wearing what looks like aesthetic clothing. And I found out in this exhibit that it actually was like Ottoman Empire inspire, inspired Jilbab and hijab. Um, mm -hmm. So like, so I wanted to take that because I love the lush costuming and I also love the politics. I know a lot of people complain about the Senate scenes, but like my favorite scenes from the trilogy, from the prequel trilogy are Padme declaiming before the Senate. Like that's, that's, that's the stuff that I like rewatch on YouTube when I'm not rewatching everyone <laughs> screaming, you are the chosen one. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I really was like, okay, so like, imagine this is a uni this is a universe that actually has brown people because there are almost no brown or black people in Star Wars. Um, yeah, and and like, imagine that also like, you get to like pay real attention to how culture shapes because the movies there's not a lot of space to to do like cultural specificity, right? There's yeah. sort of a like 
we all exist within a huge capitalistic bureaucratic machine um, and everyone sort of speaks like Republican common and all of this other stuff. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to do a space opera or a space fantasy that was like really culturally specific where the culture really informed in a really like meaningful way, um, the shape of the politics and the shape of, of the resistance and all of this other stuff. Um, so that's part of it. And then also like obviously Tolkien, which we have been talking about for a long time. I read, um, I'm like trying to picture my childhood bookshelf. Um, oh, I read, um, shoot, I can't remember the name of the series, but I remember I just like inhaled it over. I'm going to, I'm going to open my Kindle and see, cause I bought, um, the first one. Shoot, where is it? Oh, there's a lot of Nalini saying, oh, <laughs> um, Oh, this is what it's called. It's Kate Forces, The Witches of Aelinam. Mm -hmm. Have either of you guys read that? I have not. I don't think it, I have, yeah. So I inhaled this series the summer that I was like 14. There's like six books and it's about um, twin sisters. They're separated at birth um, and they're like uh, witches who live in a time in like fake Scotland in a time where like witchcraft has been outlawed. And so one of them is raised by a witch to be a witch and the other one is raised by like Viking vikings in the arctic and so mm -hmm. it's about how like their destinies shape the destiny of the continent that they exist on and it was so so good um it is also like i realized recently the start of my love of bird people i got a review that was like it's really weird that a horas is a bird and i was like it's not weird it's actually inspired and you're a coward um <laughs> and part of it was this kate forsyth um series and you know I, I like I just when you're a kid you just like don't know anything so I just like picked them up from the library or whatever and then I like was googling them because I was trying to find them again and it was like oh they were like an international sensation so I wasn't special I had like secretly discovered these books everyone was reading them. <laughs> <laughs> um and um and I think I think that's like those are like the big ones I'm like trying to think what I, what did I read when I was a child I don't know but I just bought Australian now so I'm gonna read that thank you <laughs> It sounds like everything I would love too. They they were really really good. I really love them. You might also <laughs> okay. love um, Dragon Song, part of the um, Harper Hall of Pern series by Anne McCaffrey, and Ooh. Um, yeah, they were good. I grew up on those. Um, and then I never what actually was... read Pern growing up. You should. Oh, you know what else I read? The Dragon The Dragon Chronicles by um, Susan Fletcher yes those were great i loved those they were um like i still have my copies of those actually and then one i always bring up is is half magic just because like, oh yes yes like edward egger right yes yeah oh i had i had the box set ah like the the hijinks that ensue in that it was one of the first yeah. books that i read after harry potter because i'm i'm very much like the harry potter generation harry mm -hmm. potter got me reading um and i found half magic at the library and it is it's so silly like my my favorite yeah it's it's one of my my childhood favorites especially when they're like all right i want to be closer to mom and they only get halfway there like <laughs> it's, it's funny so so the the premise maggie is that they have um half a magic coin and it only grants half of their wish so like if they're like i want a bowl of popcorn they'll only get half a bowl of popcorn and sometimes it's like a whole bowl but it's only half full of popcorn or sometimes depending on how they phrased it it would be like literally half a bowl of popcorn <laughs> you know and it's just it's very silly and it really kind of touches on like the uh what's the word i'm looking for just 
like the hijinks that yeah. magic tends to bring up where you know like you you didn't say it exactly correctly and now you have <laughs> yeah. a tentacle for an arm kind of thing <laughs> yeah yeah it's oh i also read a lot of eva ibbotson when i was a kid so like platform the secrets of platform 13 which which yes um there was another these one. are titles i have not heard in years and i'm starting to feel <laughs> a little old but it's okay it's okay yeah, i i realized that i that i ha- that i like somehow lucked into reading like really good really really good middle grade when i was younger um like oh i read um the mixed up files of easel something something frank weiler um which is by god i can't remember the name her the the author's name um but i i remember being so like i was so taken with it and i was like i too could run away and live secretly in the met if i wanted to I too could sneak in Marie Antoinette's bed if I wanted to, um, and really um, the only thing that was preventing me was money. <laughs> it's um, E.L. Konigsberg, right? Yes, the author. Yeah. Yes. Oh man, I loved anything with a dragon on the cover when I was a kid, and even now, like immediately had my heart. And the yeah. one thing that I loved so, like, the series I loved so much as a kid uh, was um, uh, Dragon War by Lauren Siep. Just because it had a dragon on it oh. and a wizard monkey, and it's it, I loved it so much. It was such a good series. Hundred percent recommend. Yeah, 100%. I I read some Tamora Pierce, but not a lot. And then, mm-hmm. like, I read the Circle of Magic series, and then because the, I feel like there's always a, a point in like a kid's life where they don't understand series as a concept, so they just read stuff out of order. And that was mm-hmm. me and Tamora Pierce, where like I was like, oh, I like these, and then I just like didn't do anything else and didn't realize that there were like subsequent series or anything like that um i think that does speak to like the yesteryear of middle grade though that like even though they were like a series you know they weren't really a a lot of old middle grade was not chronological so like harry potter like harry potter you can't really read out of order you can try but you can't really read out of order but like goosebumps goosebumps you can read out of order and they're a series quote unquote i don't really recommend reading them because they're all very (laughs) terrible but you know like there were there's a couple series like that now. One one that comes to mind is the graphic novel. It's called Phoebe and Her Unicorn. And it's basically like modern day gender swapped uh, Calvin and Hobbes. And I love it. Oh, nice. I love it so much. It's so adorable. It's by uh, Dana Simpson. And it's... it's um, You have Phoebe and then you have Marigold Heavenly Nostrils, the unicorn. <laughs> and, yeah. And she's like... There's a there's a lot of jokes about like the tropes surrounding fantasy and unicorns and mm-hmm. things and, and one of my favorites was uh, Phoebe got sick and she's got a cold and she's like I will give you an ancient unicorn recipe and she's like oh what is it she's like it's ginger ale and crackers <laughs> 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 like oh okay or there's a, they're making fun of ironic where she's like what does that even mean she's like I don't know but mom says some woman in the 90s ruined it in a song like it's just. <laughs> Like it's it's made for kids, but it's it's got a lot of that like intertextuality that adults love to see in kid kid lit. So yeah. it's it's so good. <laughs> uh, so coming back to uh, inspirations, um, what was the first scene uh, that you wrote in Mirage, and what about it made it feel worth exploring? Um, 
I think the first scene I wrote was Amani being taken through um, the public bath. I don't I actually, it's been so long since I've actually done a close read of Mirage um, that I don't remember if the scene made it into the book, but like um, there's the, one of the initial concepts was that she, when she's taken to Andala, she is taken to a public bath or like, you know, a public bath in like the women's quarters or whatever. And she's like scrubbed down to be present to make, to be made presentable to Maram. And it's the first time she meets Maram. Um, and I don't think that, that like the, the bird attacking her wasn't there. The rock attacking her wasn't there, but it was just her and, and Maram sort of facing off. And there was like this really charged energy between the two of them. And I was like, I want to explore that relationship. I want to see, like the 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 difficulties of of that and how that unfolds um and then i think there was another scene um that so like originally um amani was like a poet for a dissident magazine and that's why she gets arrested initially and then like she gets flagged in the system as a lookalike um and that was really that was fun for me to write to like to think about like what kind of a like that was the moment that she like stuck with me where I was like trying to figure out what kind of a person she was like what kind of a personality she had and what's the thing that would like make her persevere in this kind of a situation um and that's how she that's how she stuck to me as a character yeah I love that yeah and that is a great way to segue into game number two We don't we don't do smooth segues here in case we haven't noticed that yet. Uh, but game number two is whose first line is it anyway? Uh, we are going to read a first line for you, and you'll try and guess which book it belongs to. Nice and easy. And uh, all of these are also relatively recent YA novels, so we're not like you know Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of Number Four Prisoner Drive kind of thing. Right. So, uh, so option number one. I've been locked up for 264 days. Oh, isn't that Shatterney? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Number two. Juiced has two problems, the moon and his mustache. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> that one is Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo. Oh. Uh, and then number three. There was a hand in the darkness and it held a knife. Yeah. Uh, the Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. Oh, I haven't read that one. Mm. Oh, you okay. should. It's a good one. Number four. There is one mirror in my house. It is behind a sliding panel in the hallway upstairs. Okay, yep. You yep. <laughs> <laughs> even have to finish the quote. No. That's such a, like, a stellar and like memorable first scene. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the early summer sky was the color of cat vomit. <laughs> no idea. That's a line. That's uh, Uglies by Scott Westerfield. Oh, wow. Which I've definitely... Okay, but to be fair to me, I haven't read that one in like 15 years. Yeah, I think yeah. that's the oldest one on this list. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, a line. Whew. It's it's a good line. Yeah. It's, it's a line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then our last one. There's something haunting about a body touched by magic. Oh, I feel like I should know this one. I, I don't know. This one is Serpent and Dove by Shelby Mahroon. 
Okay, I also can write that one. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a very good one. I yeah, I highly recommend that one. That one's I've really, really good. things about it. Yeah, very steamy. We we're very excited. We got approved for arcs for her sequel coming out in September. Oh, I'm like yay. ah, <laughs> but I I'm like I'm trying to hold off reading it until closer so that when my review goes up, it's not like something that I wrote six months ago and then I right. don't remember what happened. Uh, okay, so my my favorite questions uh, that we get to ask here are, are about research, and we we already touched on some research earlier, and then went into a very long rant about Tolkien. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm leaving it all in there. I'm not cutting this shit down. It was a good rant. Um, but, and I'm I'm sure there was actually. I've been told you told us already this particular podcast that a lot of research and planning went into Mirage and Court of Lions. But my question is, what was the weirdest thing that you had to research? Uh, our favorite answers to this include killing an octopus with your teeth and cow insemination. So oh if you have anything to top those, um, no. <laughs> God, I don't, I don't think so. I think the weirdest thing that I ever researched was what season roses grow in. And one of my friends had to be like, it's a sci-fi novel on a moon that doesn't exist. It doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) But it does. So like, Um, no, like it. Yeah. Because it, because if all of a sudden your roses are growing in the winter, you know, like, then you have to come up with all these extra information yeah. about what they do. And that seems like well, a lot of extra really, work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, really, it was just, the it was like a, in the, in the first or second chapter, you know, Manny's talking about how, like, all of their livelihood has been burned down by the Imperial Garda. And um, there are a lot of places in Morocco that uh, cultivate roses for perfume. And I was like, this would be like a cool thing to have. Um, and I think they're just ahead of winter. But my friend was like, either way, like the rose bushes can burn whether or not they're in bloom. Like it's not, you're getting hung up on the wrong question. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think, I think the weirdest, I mean, it's not really, I don't, I didn't really research weird things because there's not a lot of like weird stuff that happens um, in the novel. I think the, the like, most out of left field thing might be like I asked my mom how to weave because I found out that she um she grew up in a village in the I mean it's not really a village it was, it's like a small city it's like a ski resort town basically in Morocco called Ifran mm-hmm. in the Atlas Mountains um and I there was a scene which I don't think made it or I think made it like very very little um like a truncated version of her of her weaving on a loom made it into Court of Lions but the original version of the scene, she was like doing the prep work and talking about the prep work of weaving. And so I called my mom and she was like, oh, I used to build my own looms and I used to weave my own wool into yarn. Like, I can tell you all about that. And so I like wow. had her with her wow. for like a half hour where she like talked me through um, how to do all of that. Um, yeah, I think that's like the. the that's yeah. really nice. It was. Yeah, yeah. that's. It's not cow insemination, but it's no, really it's not, nice. It's not cow insemination. I think my favorite story, though, my favorite story, though, of weird research is not necessarily, I mean, yeah, the, the subject was weird. It was more the situation. I was in a final exam period for my undergrad at one point. My roommate was taking the exam next to me and I finished early uh, and I was just waiting for her. So I'm just like sitting at the desk waiting for her and I'm researching how summer conditions affect body decay oh because i had just written a scene about a <laughs> someone rediscovering a body after it had been in the sun for like six weeks 
Oh um, no! And she, at one point, she looks over because she's just like, "All right, are you ready to go, Maggie?" Like that kind of thing. Uh, and she, and on my phone, I just have a picture of a, of a very ro- uh, rotted corpse. Oh my goodness! Uh, she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have. I think every writer has a, a similar story. Um, I definitely have one. I was at work and wondering how winter affected the decay rate for a body and (laughs) so i just have like a google search of dead bodies in winter up on my computer and somebody walked up behind me and they're like what what are you looking at and the the answer the answer that came from my mouth before i had time to think about what a terrible answer it was was it's for a project (laughs) (laughs) and and they just walked away and i'm like that didn't help. That didn't help the no. situation at all. No. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh. uh, so, not about murder, though. This could it could be relevant. Um, what was one of your favorite scenes to write in either Mirage or Court of Lions? Ooh. In Court of Lions, there is a scene where uh, Maram is in a crypt. And she's lighting, and I won't spoil like any more than that, but she's lighting all of these like uh, bowers with bohor, which is like uh, scented wooden incense that's like soaked in oil. So it gives off mm-hmm. a very like pungent smell. Um, and I can't actually have it burn because otherwise my clothes, my, my uh, throat closes up. But it's a really like quiet scene um, where like there's an image of her mother in stained glass above her. Um, and I think that was my favorite scene. It was the scene that I was looking forward to writing the most in, in Court of Lions. Um, it was like part of the preconception of, of Court of Lions. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's amazing. So our last interview question mm-hmm. uh, is pretty pretty general, but do you have any uh, writing rituals and, and have they changed since becoming published? Um. N- I do have a writing ritual where, so for each project that I'm working on, I build like a hype list. So it's like trailers and, and movie clips of things that I think are like tonally or genrely similar to the thing that I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes like the, the hype list is like 30 minutes long, but I watch the whole thing before I sit down to write to like get my mind to like engage in like the proper genre category thinking mode or whatever so for mirage and court of lions that was a lot of magnificent century have you guys seen magnificent century i don't don't think i have it's a turkish um like uh it's a turkish drama so there's two there's magnificent century and then magnificent century kusem and they are turkish dramas about um the first one is about harem so she's like roxalina the the like first uh ottoman empire concubine that a sultan married and she became she he like freed her and made her like the legitimate mother of his children and she like became empress of the of the ottoman empire um and then the spinoff is about one of her successors Qasem, who similarly um ahmed marries her the emperor marries her and she becomes the, the like legitimate mother of, of his children and they like they both upset like the expectation the expectations of the harem and the expectations of the state and really interesting ways and um like their their mark on history is really like undeniable and also interesting in the ways in which they like moved within their position because you know even as empresses they don't actually have a lot of like legal power or state power and so the ways that they exercise 
um, the power that they do have to affect the state is really interesting. Um, and it's also, it's like, they're like not, the the series are like not really historically accurate, but they're very dramatic. There are a lot of like, like dramatic standoffs between women um, plotting to kill each other. <laughs> so I, so I had a lot of, I had a lot of those clips um, stored away to like watch whenever I was having a really hard time writing. Yeah. I'd like. I love that idea. I'm going to start doing that. That sounds like a really great way, especially if you're writing genre fiction to like yeah. get, get yourself into that mood and, and that headspace. It yeah, I do. Great. I do bookish playlists. So like for every single uh, draft that I have, I have a, a playlist for of just songs that elicit certain like themes and moods and such. And then I was writing a I was briefly entertaining writing a novel in the point of view of my antagonist from the main story that I'm writing set, you know, way back in, in her when she was a young, young teen. Mm. Um, and the main song on there is Bad Guy by Billie Eilish. Uh, as well as you should see me in a crown so like i would just have bad guy on repeat i'm mm-hmm. I, i'm literally sitting at my desk job and i have bad guy playing on repeat in my headphones and i'm just jamming at my desk just like yeah this is this is the exact mood i need to be in to go kill some uh some magical creatures <laughs> heck yeah <laughs> my i think my go-to especially for like villains in my work is puddle of mud she fucking hates me <laughs> and i just kind of let that go on repeat 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 uh and that that gets me in the headspace to be you know an angsty pain in the ass so yeah. it's, it's good what do you mean headspace you're always an angsty pain in the ass nope, nope i'm a wonderful person so sweet never think about murdering the children in my neighborhood but <laughs> All right, Jesse. So our final question, uh, we like to give this to all of our guests. Um, Are there any, is there anyone that you'd like to thank, whether they're publishing professionals or not? Just to give them like a shout out. Um, Yeah, my editor, Kate Sullivan, who really, really is phenomenal. Um, She, I think I said earlier that like, I'm someone who definitely overworld builds. um, And I'm really lucky in that Kate has like a really similar sensibility to me in terms of fantasy writing. Um, And so like we were, I was really worried that Court of Lions was something a little bit above my skill level because it's a much bigger cast and there's more of the world, like the world has gotten bigger and Amani's world has gotten bigger and the stakes have gotten higher. And I was really worried that I wasn't going to be able to balance that out well or bring, bring across what it exactly is that I wanted to do with the novel, which is really explore like the tension in in women's spaces and like the ways in which women can both collaborate and undercut one another and she really like i mean obviously editors bring their a-game but she really like brought her a-game and i'm really proud of the book and it's it's really like in large part to her because the thing that i wrote was like cumbersome and and wieldy and she really helped like nail down what the story was about and and how how to best communicate um how to best communicate that through the characters and through the landscape. That's so, great. Yeah. Oh, and my, my agent, Joe, who's like, sorry. Yeah. No, <laughs> like no, both of them really together, <laughs> both of them really together. Like, um, publishing is really scary and really hard. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they're both just like wonderful. They're just stellar human beings. That's awesome. 
so I believe that is all the time that we have for tonight. Uh, tune in next time for more great bookish discussions. Uh, Samaya, if you wanted to plug any of your social links where our listeners can find you online. Yeah, so you can find me on my website at sumayabooks.com and you can find me on Twitter at, at @sumayadawood and you can find me on Instagram at sumaya with 3 eyes. Um, and then you can also sign up for my newsletter which is also on my website. Great. Uh, we'll make sure to have those links in the show notes as and then you can also uh, follow us uh, and connect with us personally on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and, and don't forward. forget to and Tumblr. I forgot we're on Tumblr now. I forgot Tumblr was a thing. <laughs> Should we all be so lucky? <laughs> uh, don't forget to visit bookedallnight.blog for more book reviews, blog tours, and roundups. Whether you're listening on Spotify, iTunes, or Google Podcasts, make sure you drop a five-star review of the show. Good night, my little spacewalkers. Yay! I forgot that... I always forget that Noun of the Night is a thing until the last possible second it's your thing that you insist on doing i like doing it it's cute (laughs) i just good night good night